Welcome to the CPA Advisory Show. I'm Jeremy Wells, and with me as always is Chris Hervishon. Chris, how you doing? Awesome. How are you doing? I am doing well, recuperating a little bit from that 9-15 deadline, but staring down the barrel of the 10-15 deadline now, um, which I'm in Florida, so I guess it's 2-15 now. Yeah, so, we don't we don't need to talk about it, though, while we're all still mentally recovering. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, super excited to have another guest in the studio with us uh, today. And from a remote location, we've got uh, Andrea McDonald, CPA, with us. Andrea, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for being here. And uh, let you introduce yourself and tell us about uh, what you're working on. Hey, everyone. It's, I'm so excited to be here. So I am Andrea McDonald, CPA. I have an accounting firm based in Chesapeake, Virginia, although we are now fully virtual following an acquisition that I made earlier this year. Um, I've got a team of 11 people spread across five different states, and we are just getting our act together. An acquisition is not for the faint of heart. Um, we're four months in now, and so things are a lot smoother than when I first chatted with you guys, but we're still figuring some things out. And that is my main focus right now, other than surviving tax deadlines, of course. Absolutely. Okay. So I think that right there is uh, what led me to reach out to you because I know I know a few months ago, I started seeing you post about uh, acquiring another firm on Twitter. And obviously, this is something that as firm owners, we're always uh, thinking about. I know Chris and I have talked about this both on and off air a few times about being on some of these listservs where every now and then we an email shows up in our box and says, hey, here's this firm in your area that is up for sale and, you know, go through that process. So talk us through uh, what acquisition, since this is still fresh for you, uh, talk us through that acquisition mindset. What made you decide to acquire a firm? Was it the specific firm or were you just looking to acquire and got lucky and found one? How did that process start and what was that like? Yeah. So I, about a year and a half ago, started thinking about acquisition as a means not only for growth, but also staff acquisition. Uh, I actually just read a post, I think yesterday, about how if you're acquiring a firm just to gain staff, you're an idiot. So I kind of laughed because that was a little bit of my motivation. Um, so I, I started thinking about acquisition as a way to accomplish some of those goals. And so I signed up with Poe Group Advisors to be able to see their practice practices that are for sale. I was focused strictly on virtual practices. I had a brick and mortar location that we had moved to fully virtual. And so I didn't want to go backwards. And I really just kind of sat down and thought about, you know, what criteria would a practice have to have for it to interest me? I thought about, you know, the fact that it had to be fully virtual. I thought about the type of clients that I like working with. You know, I work with primarily service-based clients, not really interested in manufacturing. I don't particularly love, you know, restaurants. So I got, you know, kind of clear on what type of clients I was looking for. And then I started looking at practice profiles. I looked at probably 30 practice profiles before I found one that I was interested in making an offer on. So it was kind of a long process to find the right fit. What kind of time frame did it take you to go through those 30 or for those 30 to appear? And what sort of time during the year? Is this like an after tax season thing? Is this a before tax season thing? Help us understand that a little bit. Yeah. So I was primarily looking after tax season. Uh, during tax season, I was really too busy to think about anything other than surviving tax season. I was at the same time that I decided to do this acquisition, I was implementing some pretty big changes in my firm, taking us from a very low fixed fee for tax returns to a monthly subscription based model. And that was a multi year process to get there. So that was going on at the same time I had this great idea to acquire. Um, so it was about 16 months from when I said, hey, let me look at acquisitions until I found the one I was interested in. So those 30 or so profiles were over a 16 month period. What did that actually look like when you say you looked at a at a profile, 30 different profiles? What did that look like? I know when I, for example, have gotten some of these emails about a firm, I'll see one that could potentially be interesting, but 
but I'm only seeing a very small amount of information, right? I'm seeing like last year's revenue, last year's cash flow to the owner, and then maybe a breakdown of that revenue in terms of what percent's coming from tax versus accounting versus other stuff. And and just based on that, I'll say, yeah, send me some more information. And then I'll get last year's tax return, a PL, yeah. whether they're renting a location or not. But still, it's pretty, it's pretty basic information. So w- what are you getting? What did those 30 profiles look like? What did you start noticing across them? What different patterns? And, you know, you mentioned a few criteria you were looking for, but like what, what was in those profiles that stood out to you versus made you just say, no way, move on? Each practice broker's process is a little bit different, but for Poe Group Advisors, the way it worked is you get that initial basic information, like you said, and then when you find one you're interested in, you request a full profile. So when you request a full profile, you get a whole Excel workbook with multiple tabs that breaks down a whole lot of information, including you know number of staff members, how tenured each staff member is, what their focus is, um, client mix, number of owner hours. So you get a whole lot of information, still not enough to make an offer on a practice, but enough to really say, okay, this might fit, right? Like that client mix makes sense for me, or you know that number of team members makes sense for me. One of the big, you know, one of the big items I was looking at was number of owner hours. I already have a practice that was a more than full-time job for me. And so I wasn't really looking for a practice that would have made a whole second full-time job for me. So low owner hours was one of the criteria. Um, If they were brick and mortar, not interested even a little bit because converting from brick and mortar to virtual is challenging. And especially if they're not right in your area. So I looked at, you know, 100% virtual, low owner hours, primarily service-based clients. I looked at how many team members were servicing that number of clients. So that full practice profile included quite a bit of information. And then based on that, I reached out to whatever business broker had, you know, was assigned to that practice and said, hey, you know, I'm interested in even more information about this practice. Can you set up a meeting with the seller? And then the business broker takes it from there, sets up that meeting. So how many meetings was that that you had with the seller? And like how <laughs> like how, how much time are you spending with them? You know, what are you asking about, you know, during the various stages and things like that? So <laughs> one thing about me is I'm not risk averse at all. I am not afraid to take a leap and I'm not afraid to make quick business decisions. So I'm going to preface this next part with that information because some people it might have taken a little bit longer. For me, because I had spent so much time looking at so many practices, I had developed a pretty keen idea of what I was looking for. So this particular one, we set up, you know, I set up a phone call with the seller. We got on that call. We were on the phone for probably about 45 minutes. And it was one of those, like, I felt like the stars aligned, right? Her, her mentality, her leadership style mirrored mine. Their tech stack was very similar to ours. Her client mix was almost identical to mine. Her processes were so similar. We had a lot of, you know, there was just so much, I hate to use the word synergy, but there was just so much synergy. We got off that call. So one 45 minute call and I emailed the broker and said, I'm making an offer on this practice. You'll see my offer in an hour or two. And I think it, I think it was like an hour and a half later, I fired off an offer. So Whether that decision happens that quickly in all cases, I'd say probably not. I just had a really good feeling about her. And and now when I say offer, you know, it's obviously contingent upon successful completion of due diligence, right? There were a whole lot of, but this has to happen for the offer to actually come to fruition. But yeah, I, I just really loved that first conversation with her and made an offer that same day. That is where I start to get really interested. So, you know, we, we hear out there about different rules of thumb for how we place a value on really any service-based business, but especially within accounting, um, the, the value on an accounting firm. So when you say you came up with an offer, where did that come from? Was it Was it based on rules of thumb? Were you coached by the broker? Did you have an idea of, you know, what amount you were willing to spend going into it? Where did, where did the actual number come from? Yeah. So I actually already had pre-approval. I did my acquisition using an SBA 7A loan. 
So I already had pre-approval. So I knew what was the max I could spend on a practice. That probably helped, right? Like that sped the process up quite a bit because I knew how much I could offer before I ever got on the phone. So when they list the practice, they you know have an asking price based on whatever math the business broker came up with. And in this particular case, after looking at the rolling 12 months of financials that were provided in the full practice profile, I decided that the asking price was reasonable. Um, the rule of thumb I've always heard is like one to one and a quarter X annual gross revenue as one of the ways to calculate. Um, their ask was about 1.2 times the projected annual gross revenue for 2022 because you know they put this profile together in like September or October and I had the conversation with her in November. So 2022 wasn't done yet. So it was about 1.2 times the projected annual gross revenue. By the time the year was done, it actually came in at just under 1.15 X. Um, so anyway, I decided that that asking price felt reasonable and I knew that it was a competitive situation. I knew that she was speaking with other potential buyers. And so I really didn't want to jerk her around. I went in and made a full, you know, offered at full ask, asking price. And my offer did not have any earnout. 100% paid at closing. <laughs> and I can hear like the collective groans. <laughs> yeah, so I kind of broke several of the rules of thumb. One of which is that you always have an earnout, um, but I knew that it was going to be a competitive situation because this was a desirable practice, and so I kind of went in with like my best and final offer right out of the gate. You paid sticker price and you paid cash. Yeah, <laughs> tell, yeah. tell tell us about the no earnout thing because yeah, I mean Jeremy, Jeremy and I were both on mute, but I'm guessing that he had a collective gasp with me. Uh, so like yeah. like tell, uh, tell yeah. us more about that. That's a scary that's a scary way to offer, right? Because I assume 100% of the risk, and the seller assumes zero percent of the risk. Um, I had a sense based even just on that initial call, and thankfully. That's what I, this is what actually happened. I had the sense at that initial call that the decision to sell her practice was really hard. She had built it from scratch. This was her baby. You know, she had she and her husband, you know, their their position in life. They had, you know, a young kid. They wanted to start investing in real estate. So this was the best decision for them. But I could tell it wasn't easy for her and that she really, truly cared about her team and she really, truly cared about her clients. So I got the sense that she wouldn't just get to the closing table and walk away. Um, our agreement was written such that she stayed available to me and active in the transition for 90 days, um, which protected me a little bit, right? It still could have, maybe not, but I was really relying on her love of her team and her clients to pull it through. Thankfully, that's how it worked out. In fact, uh, you know, we're, we closed May 17th, so we're just over four months past, and she just emailed me the other day, checking in to see how things are going. Like, her obligation is done. We're past her 90 days. She's fully paid out and she's still checking in to make sure that everyone's happy, that the clients are okay. So I, a little bit of it was luck and a little bit of it was me just embracing my love of risk and uh, hoping for the best. Thankfully, okay. it has worked out. So tell us a little bit more about that 90 days and what the seller did for you and what you asked the seller to do for you and how, how she was helpful in that transition. Like, what are some of the best practices that you would recommend for some other promoters out there who are thinking about going through one of these? Yeah, so I definitely have a long list of things I wish we had thought of. You know, she and I had a Google Doc where we were jotting down everything we could think of that needed to be transitioned, you know, all the different softwares, all the different whatevers. Um, we stayed in regular, like multiple times a day communication during that first, especially 30 days, just chatting through, you know, questions that were coming in from clients. How would they have been handled previously? How was her team used to having her guide them through situations like that? Um, helping to make sure that all the software transitions happen. I don't know if you guys know, but I sure didn't. None of these software companies have the backend capability of combining two accounts. So like we used Jetpack Workflow, they use Jetpack Workflow. Jetpack can't merge accounts for you. We had to manually re-enter everything from one account into the other account to be on one account. You know. I used Ignition, they used Ignition. Ignition can't combine two accounts. So there was a lot of manual data reentry, manually making sure that you know no tasks were missed, 
Um, it was just a lot of manual processes, but she stayed involved, making sure that all of the software companies, or, you know, her points of contact were introduced to me. They understood that she had sold the company and that it was okay to transition everything to me. That was a lot of work on her part because everything had to be done manually. And so she was in it the whole time. What about something like QBO? Will they might or will they merge those two accounts? So that's that was the very last piece of software that we merged, and we actually just completed that about 30 days ago. Uh, it turns out that it's not as hard as you might think. So QBO has within it a transfer client tool that as long as you are the primary admin on both accounts, you can just go in and just transfer everybody yourself. I didn't know that. Yeah. And it worked great. It worked beautifully. It just meant that the seller had to make me primary admin on her account for a period of time until that transition was done. And then she was able to take me back off her account. So yeah, it's, it's super simple. Um, I think I had posted about it in a Facebook group and somebody said, or maybe Twitter, and somebody was like, use this. It's if you hit in, in your gear icon, which I never look at all those things I don't usually use. There's a little button that says transfer clients. It's a miracle. It literally is a miracle. It worked seamlessly. We didn't lose access to anything. The only thing it did do is it disconnected a bunch of third-party apps that we had connected and we hadn't anticipated that issue. So we had to go back through and reconnect all of those. But at the end of the day, I felt like it was easier than trying to contact Intuit to, ch to change ownership of an account. That terrified me. I don't know if you've ever had to do that before, but I had to do it once before and it was not a smooth process. So that transfer client tool, Miracle. <laughs> okay. So you said you had a very long list of other things that you would wish that you had asked. So like help help oh. us through help us through the list. We we got time. It's a long show. Yeah. And not all of it is even anything on the seller. Just things like if you're expanding and if it if the acquisition includes team members in states you do not currently operate in, of course you have to register for employment tax accounts because having employee there typically will give you Nexus there. So the process to register for all those employment tax accounts, I don't know if y'all know, but in Kentucky, there's state accounts, city accounts, and town accounts. Like there are multiple, it's like three payroll tax accounts for every one employee um, if they don't live in the same county. So I had no idea about that. Um, make sure your workers comp covers you in multiple states. Mine didn't. So I had to get a whole new workers comp policy not that big a deal, but just one of those things that I didn't think of. Um, making sure that your benefits are available in multiple states. I didn't offer medical, dental, and vision prior to the acquisition. After the acquisition, I had to offer those. I didn't have to, but I promised the seller that I would because her staff had that. And when I reached out to a broker in my area, I realized that the plans I would normally sign up for are Virginia-specific plans. And so they wouldn't work for the team members in California and Kentucky and Florida and Tennessee. So making sure that your benefits plans have the ability to cover people in states other than where you are. Um, having a good list of the softwares that will need to be transferred. That seems super basic, but we didn't have a good list. And it's like, the more we got transferred, the more we thought of, oh crap, we need to transfer that too. And that one and that one. So like that list, instead of getting shorter, just kept getting longer and longer. Whereas if we'd had that all laid out beforehand, we could have just knocked them all out. Um, those were the big ones. Those were the things that made onboarding those employees not at all smooth. Thankfully, all but one of them are still with me. Um, it made just the number of headaches I had to deal with that much more because I just those were just things I didn't think about. I was just so focused on like the clients that I forgot about all the other stuff that's involved in acquiring a business and merging it, you know, branding. Like, were we gonna operate as ProTax and Accounting or were we gonna operate as Steadfast Bookkeeping, which is the company I acquired, or were we gonna make something all together new? And then merging, you know, that means combining emails, getting everyone a ProTax email or getting everyone a Steadfast email. Now I have two websites. Which website are we going to move forward with? Just all that stuff that I didn't even think about back then that is still dragging on now because I still haven't made those decisions four months later. Okay. So you said that, uh, you know, the seller was helpful with the transition, but 
that doesn't necessarily mean that you've got 100% buy-in from the client. So has there been any issues there? And I'm going to ask the same question about the staff too. Like, I don't want to, I don't want you throwing anybody under the bus here, but like, because I, I, I would imagine, I know for me, probably even more so than you know, software issues or all that, like we can figure out, we'll just, we'll just set up a new QBO file for you if we have to, right. If we can't port that over somehow, but like the actual clients go, going along with and buying into the transfer as well as the staff themselves. And like you said, the staff were one of the primary reasons you wanted the acquisition. So let's start with the clients. How was transitioning the clients over to you and, you know, four months, I imagine there's still work being done there, right. To get them to think of you as their advisor now, instead of, uh, you know, the seller. So, so how has that process been as far as the clients go? And then we'll talk about the staff next. Yeah, it was mostly smooth. So we ended up not even notifying the clients until about 30 days after the acquisition took place for a couple of reasons. Um, mainly that the seller was taking a two week vacation out of the country and would be completely unreachable. And we didn't want clients freaking out while she was unavailable to answer their questions. So we actually postponed notifying the clients until after she got back from that vacation, which was mid-June, so about 30 days. Um, we sent out a mass email to the clients. We included you know, a video that each of us recorded, her thanking them for 10 years of awesomeness and me you know, introducing myself. And that went out on mass. Most of the clients were good with it. You know, there were a lot of like congratulatory emails, people, you know, thanking Stephanie for her help over the years and wishing her all the best and welcoming me as the new owner. There were a few people who were not happy at all. Um, I had a couple of clients book meetings on my calendar just to tell me that they were leaving. One of them was really upset that she didn't get 30 days notice that there was a new owner coming in. Like nobody does that, but she was just really upset about that, the fact that she didn't get notified ahead of time. But overall, uh, attrition wise, in the last four months, we've lost about nine clients and two or three of those have been just recently. And those have been related to a team member who left. So like clients are leaving to follow her. But out of, there were about, I don't know, roughly a hundred accounting clients, maybe 80 accounting clients and about 50 or 60 tax clients. So losing seven, eight clients is not terrible attrition following an acquisition, I don't think. I'm happy with that percent percentage. Um, the, the staff was a little bit more challenging. I think I really underestimated how upset the staff would be. So, you know, we had made the decision not to tell her team members that she was selling the company until the deal was done. And that's for a couple of reasons, but mainly on the advice of the business broker, just based on their experience, it's really better not to give, you know, the team members a heads up that that's coming. Especially if the buyer is relying on having those team members in place, because people will jump ship if they hear you're selling. And so her team members found out the day the deal closed, and then they got to meet me later that afternoon, because that was the day of their all hands monthly team meeting. So they were all very surprised. You know, my, I call them my OG team members, the people who were part of ProTax prior to the acquisition were with me for the whole ride. They knew I was acquiring a company. They got to see all the ups and downs of the process, but the steadfast team members were shocked. They had no idea she was even thinking about selling her company. Um, one of them just flat out told me in our very first one-on-one, -on -one, cause you know, I scheduled one-on-one -on -one meetings with all of them after that initial announcement. One of them flat out told me that she was not happy to be working for me, that she feels like she didn't have a choice and you know, just very blunt about how she felt. So I think I really underestimated the impact on the seller's existing team members. I knew that my philosophies aligned really well with the sellers and that the seller chose me out of a pool of potential buyers, but her team didn't know that. You know, she told them that, but they didn't really believe her. Cause you know, we don't have the typical accounting firm. I think you guys probably operate a little bit differently than the typical accounting firms as well. Like we don't work 90 hours a week during tax season. You know, we don't have that same traditional old school accounting firm setup. 
And they were nervous that a new owner would come in and, you know, immediately onboard a bunch of clients and everybody would be overworked and overwhelmed and it would just go back to being a sweatshop. So I think in if I could go back and do it over, I would have approached it with a little more, I don't know, just if, I, if I'd had better awareness that that would be an issue for them or that they would be so scared, I could have, we could have maybe approached it a little bit differently. And if I do another acquisition, that will be very top of mind for me to come in and immediately be reassuring people that, you know, this is a good place to be. What can I do to make your transition smoother? There was some drama. Um, the company that I acquired, the way that were set up, they had tax team and bookkeeping teams and each team had a manager. The On the, the tax side, there was some friction um, and I that friction never really resolved and the tax manager actually ended up putting in her notice in July uh, or in June. So about 30 days after the acquisition, she ended up putting in her notice and leaving, which at the time felt like the most awful thing that could possibly happen. You know, first the clients got notified of a new owner. Then I had to notify them that their beloved tax manager was leaving. But in hindsight, you know, now that we're two and a half months past her leaving, it was a really good thing. The tax manager that I found to replace her is amazing. Um, no drama, just a, an amazing team player. So what at the time felt like a really big problem has ended up being a really good thing. I, we do have some clients leaving and I know that they're leaving to go work with that former tax manager. And I know because one flat out told me that, and then everyone who's left since then, they're all using the exact same wording on their termination emails. So I know what's going on and that's fine. You know, I'm not trying to, I wish that tax manager all the best. I hope she's incredibly successful. I hope the clients continue to love working with her and they can go ahead and do that and we'll just bring in you know clients who are excited to work with our current tax manager hey it's chris thanks for tuning into the show and we really hope you're enjoying it if you like the show please like and subscribe on your favorite podcast app if you really like the show please leave us a review and we'll read it on the air if you have a service or an app that is tailored to accountants and you want to get in front of several hundred accounts that listen to this show every single week send us an email at host at cpaadvisoryshow.com. Okay, let's get back to the show. So the clients that left, was that mostly tax clients or was that accounting clients as well? Um, most of them have been tax only, though a couple of them, we also were doing bookkeeping. So that's like doubly disappointing, right? Like I, I really like the recurring bookkeeping revenue. <laughs> so I'm sad to see that go. But I also, you know, I, I learned a long time ago that I don't really want clients to stay who don't 100% want to be here because everyone's going to end up miserable. So I'm, I am a always look at the bright side kind of person. So I'm just approaching this like they're probably a better fit for that other person anyway. Like that's great. We'll just bring in clients who are a better fit for us. Ta da! I don't know. As long as I can keep paying the bills, I can keep thinking like that. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So next time you go through one of these things, how much emphasis? would you place on communication with existing clients and communication with existing staff on what that seller is thinking about and what that seller is is going through as far as um, being acquired? I still support, <laughs> this is going to sound really bad, and if you're a team member who has gone through an acquisition and it didn't go well, I'm sorry, but I do still support not telling the team members Um in this particular case, I do think several of them would have left prior to the acquisition actually happening. And that would have been a deal breaker probably. Um, so I don't know that I would advocate keeping staff in the loop if you're thinking about selling your company. It creates a lot of probably unnecessary stress, right? Like. So I don't know. I'm trying to put myself in that position. You know, if I decide to sell my company, will I want my team members to know? I care about them. So as a business owner, I would want them to know. But as a potential buyer, I wouldn't want them to know. I would want them to have the opportunity to meet me before they decide to quit because they might find they like me and want to keep working here. But in this particular case, I know at least two of them would have quit had they known an acquisition was coming. 
One of them ended up leaving anyway, so not the end of the world. But the other one is actually a really good team member most of the time. And so that would have been, you know, kind of painful to have her leave. Um, so as far as client communications, I'm kind of in the same boat. You know, it's it depends how the company is set up. So what the seller had been moving to in preparation, you know, she knew a couple of years ago that she was going to be thinking about selling. So a couple of years ago, she started removing herself from being the main point of contact for clients. And, and the way she was moving towards setting up the business is the way mine is currently set up, where we have teams. Bookkeeping managers are the ones who are communicating with the clients, not me and not the bookkeepers, right? Because work can shift between the bookkeepers, but no change in point of contact for the clients. So tax managers and bookkeeping managers are the ones communicating with the clients. When you have it set up that way, and I'm not the main point of contact for any of the clients, then there's no hitch in the giddy up for the client if the owner changes, right? You know, Eric is still their bookkeeping manager. Eric is still their main point of contact, whether Andrea is the owner or Stephanie's the owner. And I think that's why we didn't have much attrition because the clients were already used to not working with the previous owner. Um, so I would just say, you know, if you're considering selling your company at some point, start thinking about things like that. Is there a way to make yourself not the main point of contact so that if you have a change of ownership, your clients don't feel it? Well, that's that's a great point. I mean, do you have any thoughts around how to do that successfully or <laughs> <laughs> like you, you've obviously done it. So what's yeah. what's your best advice as far as transitioning that relationship away from yourself and how, like how long a process is that? Obviously it's case by case, but Typically, like how long do you think that process is? How do you start it? And then when do you just cut off the cord altogether? So we do still have some clients, you know, the original ProTax clients who I still communicate with, but most of them have transitioned. And the way we did it was it started with discovery calls with potential clients. During those discovery calls and during the onboarding process, I always tell people that I have a team. The only way we can get work done is I have a team. And so your main point of contact is going to be your bookkeeping manager or your tax manager. So I introduced the concept of somebody other than me being their main point of contact right from the beginning. So that's where we started. Then I moved on to existing clients and I just made email introductions, right? Hey, XYZ client, um, Eric is a bookkeeping manager here. He is going to be taking over handling your books. He's amazing. I personally picked him to work with you. He'll be your main point of contact from here forward. And then that introduction happens and then Eric took the ball and run with it. The other thing that we did at that same time is we moved from communicating with clients from our personal company email addresses to a centralized accounting at email address. So all client communication comes into and goes out of accounting at steadfastbookkeeping.com. It's not Eric's at steadfast email address that's communicating with anybody. And so having that centralized email inbox makes it easy for the clients, whether it's tax or bookkeeping, they just have one email address to remember. It makes it easy for us as a team to help cover when you know things are really busy because we're all in that centralized email. We can all respond on behalf of other people if we have to. And so it was really just for existing clients, a personal introduction, like, hey, I've really enjoyed working with you. My team has expanded. Eric is a bookkeeping manager or Jessica is a bookkeeping manager. They're super amazing. You're going to love working with them. I'm going to let them introduce themselves to you and take it from here. And then after that, like once that introduction happens, you'll still get emails from clients. And I just forward that email to the accounting at inbox, tag the bookkeeping manager and let them respond. After that, like once you make that notification, then it's on me to be strong and actually stick to it, right? Like make them follow it. I can't respond from my email inbox because then they're never going to stop. So I forward it to accounting at, I tag the person who needs to respond and then they take it from there. Yeah. I, this is, this is one of my, I don't know if I'd call it a regret, but you know, after almost six years of having a firm, which the firm is named after me. Right. So that's already mistake number one. Right. Um, and then the second one is my email has always been my name. Right. And so mm -hmm. now there's no way <laughs> of backtracking out of that. Right. Um, okay. But, I, but on that note, right. So you've got the team 
uh, sort of bifurcated into the accounting and the, and the tax side. But there's other ways of structuring the staff within a firm. Are you happy with that structure or have you thought about different ways of organizing it? So, for example, a, 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 a team rather than a bookkeeping team and a tax team, a single team with one point of contact for multiple clients, for example, right? So it, like, ha have you thought about shuffling things around or are you happy with that structure for now? I'm happy with the structure for now. Um, and this was not the structure that I had in place prior to the acquisition. We were sort of moving to that, sort of not. Um, what I had before was, you know, we had a bookkeeper who was assigned to the client and the tax person who was assigned to the client and they communicated independently, you know, so similar, but not exactly the same. The reason I like having it bifurcated by function rather than by client is during periods like tax season that are condensed and stressful. For me, it's hard if you have one person who's working on a client and they're doing the accounting and the taxes, the accounting falls behind to focus on the taxes. And then they spend the next several months getting the accounting caught up. This way, the accounting team is focused on the accounting the tax team is focused on the taxes. We use Slack, so they communicate amongst themselves. You know, if the tax people need something to get it done, they can get on Slack and be in touch with the accounting manager, you know, the bookkeeping manager. We have everything labeled so everyone knows who the manager is on which client. So far, I really like it. Um, I'm never one to say that this is how it's always gonna be. I hate hearing that's how it was always done and this is how it's always gonna be. Those are never things you're gonna hear me say. So that's not to say that we'll stick with this structure forever, but for right now, I like it because it makes it very clear. The client knows who their bookkeeping manager is. They know who their tax manager is. There, it's, it's very clear for them who they need to ask which questions to. I would be curious to hear from other people. You know, Hopefully one of the results of this is that we get some feedback like, hey, maybe try structuring it like this. Like, how do you guys have your team set up? I'm curious. I'm a, I'm a team of one and 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 a, and a few others that you know are behind the scenes so that it, it's it's just me like i said um but yeah chris yeah so we've we're similar but smaller right so it doesn't work out quite the same as far as like a true team um but bookkeeping and payroll go to you know sp specific bookkeeping and payroll folks there's only two people in my firm who do tax and i'm pretty much where the buck stops as far as delivering tax returns and and signing tax returns and filing tax returns and that whole thing. So anything that's tax is coming to me. That's been part of the challenge in my firm is getting that away from me because I will never be free until that goes away. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, like bookkeeping, payroll, things like that, I have almost no interaction with, right? So when, as we iterate, we're going to be iterating towards something that, and grow, we'll be iterating and growing towards something that's more aligned to what you're doing. But we've talked to firm owners, maybe on the show, but I know I've talked to some uh, off the air that have actually moved to more of what I guess you'd call more like the agency model, where where there's sort of an account manager, right, or or mm -hmm. a client relationship manager, and so every client has just a single point of contact, right, sure. and then that person is responsible for feeding that question or that concern or that issue or that you know, work status update or whatever to either the assigned bookkeeper or the the tax professional. But in that way, the actual, you know, subject matter expert or the actual technician, right, is is kept separate from the, the direct communication with the customer. So and, you know, obviously there are pros and cons there, right? Like, you know, from from the inside, right, I would always have a little bit of concern about the filtering maybe of the technical, you know, some questions as, as much as we try to put them in layman's terms, right? Some questions need a little bit of technical explanation behind them. And I'd be concerned with a non accountant, you yeah. know, it, relaying that information. I, I don't know, may, maybe they would word it in a way that would make more sense to a layman, you know, that, that would actually help <laughs> move the conversation along, but then maybe that would, you know, they would leave something out that was a technical detail that wind, wound up you know, being problematic later on down the road. So, so I have issues with that model as well. That's something that I've struggled with. Like, does your customer relationship manager need to be a technical person or not? And I tend to think that 
some technical expertise is better than, than not. So basically an accountant who's got some expertise who can be customer facing, which it sounds like to me, Andrea, like that's basically what you're doing with your bookkeeping managers. Yeah, it is. And so, you know, we have a client care director and, and there are tasks that she handles for each client, but that's more like the, we send birthday cards with a gift card. We send holiday gifts. Like our client care manager takes care of more of that kind of thing. Um, I could see having a client relationship manager. I mean, I could see having that kind of setup. It's not super different than what we're doing. It's just, but yeah, we're having the, the people with the technical skill in a management position and they're the ones communicating with the client. I have the same kind of reservation, Jeremy, that you mentioned. Like what if, especially on the tax side, like it's so precise and your wording has to be so exact if you're putting advice in writing that I don't really know how I would feel about having a non-tax pro handling that type of communication. And the reason I have the teams set up the way I do accomplishes a lot of that same thing, right? It's a little more streamlined. They have, you know, our clients, if they're tax and accounting, have two points of contact instead of one. But what having the team set up allows us to do is, you know, I'll have a manager and then up to four associates under a manager. And at four, that's when I consider that team to be full. What that allows us to do is have a group of clients assigned to that bookkeeping manager but that bookkeeping manager has the flexibility to reassign clients to bookkeepers based on capacity as needed, but the client never feels the difference because that bookkeeping manager is still just that point of contact. So it allows us to have the flexibility to move work around to meet capacity demands without having any change to who's communicating with the clients. So it accomplishes a lot of that same stuff. I just, I haven't really wrapped my head around having a non-technical person being the one communicating technical information to the clients. Yeah, I can't get there either, especially on the tax side, just like you were saying. No, I'm I'm curious though, a bookkeeping manager, like what level of tech, technical expertise are we talking and experience and, and seniority and that sort of thing are we talking about? And what are the what are the I guess the core skill sets that you look for as far as interfacing with customers? From a technical expertise standpoint I'm going to preface this by saying that although I am a CPA and I do love my credential and I will tell everyone who asks and it's on my license plate and I would skywrite it if I had the inclination to do it, I'm not super concerned about education, like like uh, formal education or credentials. So neither of my bookkeeping managers are CPAs, but they've got great bookkeeping skills, right? And none of our clients are super complicated accounting setup. Most of our clients do not have to follow GAAP. Most of our clients are not on accrual accounting, though we do have some who are. So the level of expertise of somebody that I can call a bookkeeping manager will not be the same as somebody who's got a firm of, you know, $20 million a year businesses that have to do full accrual accounting. So what I look for is, you know, they need to have several years of experience in bookkeeping and I'll, you know, test for bookkeeping knowledge. They need to be able to navigate efficiently in QBO. We are almost exclusively a QBO shop at this point. We got, we ditched the last of the QuickBooks desktop clients several years ago. We do support a few other softwares like FreshBooks and Xero. I don't think I have anyone else on Accounting Suite, although I don't hate Accounting Suite. I love that as an alternative, but we are primarily QBO. So I do require my team to be pro advisors, although mine lapsed. I forgot the deadline and so I missed it, but I do require my team members to be pro advisors. They have to demonstrate that they can navigate efficiently in QuickBooks Online, but then they also have to demonstrate that they can check other people's work. That's the big thing. Because they have bookkeepers reporting to them, they're reviewing all of the bookkeepers' work and then sending out the monthly reports to the clients. So they have to be able to check up after people, and not everyone has that particular skill set. So that's the main one for me, is they have to be able to log into a set of books and identify issues without having been the one categorizing all the transactions. So it's not a it's not a super high level of technical expertise, although that is something that I'm working, you know, that I work with them on because I do just believe in doing really good tight bookkeeping, even for our non-accrual accounting clients. I'm not happy just doing the bare minimum. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know that I fully answered your question. Um, one of the bookkeeping managers came with the acquisition. She was already a bookkeeping manager and she just stayed in that role. And then the other one came from my original team and he got promoted to bookkeeping manager as part of this like post-acquisition restructuring. He was a little bit lighter on experience, 
but he's so incredibly smart and analytical. Like he just gets it. He, you can teach him something and that he not only gets it, but he's asking questions about things five steps ahead of what you taught him. So his experience is a little bit lighter than it might normally be for me to bring in somebody off the street as a bookkeeping manager, but because I know him and his technical skills, like he's, he's already up to speed where I would have wanted him to be. And it only took him, you know, two months to get there. Gotcha. So where does advisory fit into your firm in this model? <laughs> and who, and who, oh, geez. No, that's a question that we ask our guests. We don't know. We don't answer that. So, um, you can't come on the episode. show with advisor no. in the name of it and not be asked about advisor. <laughs> yeah, that's episode like two, I think it was. Uh, or might have been one. Anyway, so how does it fit into your firm? And then who actually does it? Is it the bookkeeping manager? Is that you? Is it somebody else? How does that work? So it really depends on the client. You know, we have... Our most basic bookkeeping package is really just tax ready books. It's like true after the fact bookkeeping, right? You're just booking transactions. At that level, there's not a whole lot of advisory happening. We're maintaining good solid books. They're gonna get nice clean books for a nice clean tax return. Very little advisory there. For the higher level clients, it's generally happening at either the bookkeeping manager or the tax manager level. And it depends on what the engagement says. We do have packages, but then some things get a little bit customized from there. So just as an example, our tax packages, so even if it's a tax only client, so no bookkeeping, they're still in a monthly package. And our lowest package includes at least one tax plan review per year. So once a year, we're gonna update projections. You know, we're gathering current pay stubs and we're looking in their QBO and projecting out net income for the rest of the year. And we're preparing a projection to tell them, you know, whether their estimated tax payments are what they need to be and recommending any tax strategies that we can think of that apply to their situation and then guiding them through how to implement those strategies. So it really depends on the package they're in, but generally it's going to be the manager who's assigned to them delivering that service. With me as a backup, of course, because I can't keep my hands out of things. I get excited and I start digging and as much as I'm trying to remove myself from the day-to-day -day client work, I still love doing accounting and I actually love doing the tax returns. I just hate tax season. So I'm having to extricate myself from those things just out of necessity because I'm a bottleneck. And if I have to be in everything, no one's ever going to get anything done, but I still love doing those things. So I will on occasion be the one to jump in and take that part over. But, you know, we don't really have any super high level advising happening. I am the CFO for one of our nonprofit clients, but we don't really at this point offer CFO level services. I don't really have any team members who are capable of offering. Well, they're probably capable, but it would take some training, right? Like we don't currently offer any CFO services because I would have to be the one delivering that and I'm too busy to do that right now. So it's kind of a loaded question. I mean, I guess it depends how you define advisory. But for every client, when we're in their books, we're looking for, you know, odd variances. We're looking for a whole bunch of stuff when we do our month-end review, but it's typically the manager assigned to that client who's delivering that service. Got it. Okay. So you, on that note, you mentioned that most of your customers are using QBO. You've got a couple of other uh, accounting softwares that you're also able to support as well. And one of the selling points for the firm you just acquired was how in sync your tech stacks were between the, the firm you had and, and the firm you were buying. So tell us a little bit more about that. Let's get into the, to the weeds a bit. So what, are you, what tech are you actually using to run your firm, to do the tax work and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so they were primarily QBO. We were primarily QBO, that helped. Um, <laughs> They used Jetpack workflow for tracking tasks like project management, and we did as well. So that checked. Um, I use Ignition for proposals, so did they, so that checked. When it comes to tax software, <laughs> we were on Drake still. I, I started with Drake 10 years ago when I was still with Drake. The firm I acquired uses CCH Access. Whole different, whole different ball game, like much higher level, and much higher cost tax software. So we are not gonna stay on Drake. I'm not gonna make anyone, you know, as much as I love the price point of Drake, it does lack 
some functionality. So we're going to be leaving Drake after October 15th. I'm still on the fence about whether we're going to stick with CCH access though. And Jeremy, you were kind enough to do a little ProConnect introduction for me. I actually did a tax return in ProConnect to test it out. Didn't hate it. So I think heading into tax year 23, we are either going to be on ProConnect or access. I'm not decided yet. And they're both knocking on my door for money. So I have to make a decision here soon. Um, so that was one area we deviated was tax software. Another area that we did deviate was client portals. I was using ShareFile. They use TaxDome for their tax clients. Um, so moving forward, we're probably going to stick with TaxDome. It has a bunch of automations that I didn't have using ShareFile. So we'll probably keep TaxDome. Um, I'm trying to think what other ones were the same. Those were the main ones. Um, they use Google Drive a lot, which we weren't because we were housing everything in ShareDrive or in ShareFile. So we're kind of moving over to Google Drive. I like a lot of, you know, the syncing capabilities that we didn't have before. So that's been a bit of an adjustment. But the main softwares, you know, the main, you know, the practice management software was a big one, making sure jobs aren't missed. Every task is being completed. That was the main one. And the fact that we were on the same one was good. The, the fact that I had to manually re-enter everything from one to the other to get them on one was not exciting, but I had a team member who volunteered to take that on and spent a whole weekend, a full day Saturday, full day Sunday, just data entering to get it all moved over and check that box. And it's been beautiful ever since. I'm trying to think, there are other ones. Um, I mean, there were a whole bunch of softwares we had to change over, but those were the main ones. The rest of the little stuff, you know, it's for me, it's easier to make changes to the little ancillary, like you use SurveyMonkey for surveys, I used whatever. You know, you use MailChimp and I used whatever. Those parts are easy. It was the main ones that I was focused on. Got it. So I want to go back about 45 minutes and what you had mentioned kind of sort of off the cuff was that you were moving from a low fixed fee pricing structure to a subscription-based structure. And I'm wondering whether or not you recommend doing that before or after you do a rec uh, acquisition. And then what do you learn from that process? Like I said, in my original firm, ProTax and Accounting, that was a multi-year process. I was already moving in that direction. I already knew that for 2023, we were going to be subscription only. And when I was looking at practices, I was looking for a practice that already did that. So the practice I acquired was already on subscription-based tax services. That made it incredibly easy because I didn't have to deal with that for the clients that I acquired. I only had to deal with it for the clients that I already had who already knew me, loved me, trusted me. Even that, even knowing they knew me, loved me, trusted me, I still had much lower adoption of my monthly subscriptions than I anticipated, but I'm still holding firm that that's the right move. Um, I like it because we can have fewer clients and provide a much higher level of service. We are now able to be more proactive with our communication. We can run tax projections for clients, you know, either semi-annually or quarterly, depending on what package they're in. I didn't have time for that before. You know, we went from in 2020, y'all don't groan again, don't yell at me, don't laugh at me. Our minimum fee for a 1040 was 250 bucks. Now that was a 1040 in one state, right? It went up there from there if you had schedules, you know, B, C, D, E, F, but 250 got you a 1040 with a schedule A and one state, right? It's ridiculous. So I went from that in 2020 uh, for 2021, we doubled our minimum fee to 500, which is a huge increase in one year, but we had to do it. Had a bunch of clients leave, but still made more money. So it worked out. And then at that point, I'm like, subscription-based is where it's at. We were already doing it for accounting. Like, I'm going to get there for tax. How do we get there? So for 2022, the minimum fee went up from 500 to 750. And at that point, I announced the subscription plans. So clients knew 750 for 2022, and then they're going to have to get on a plan for 2023. The other change I made was when it was 250, we invoiced clients when the return was done, but before we transmitted it. When I switched to 500, it was fixed fee and I made everyone pay at the time they signed their engagement letters. So we started getting paid upfront for tax, which was another big change. So like we rolled out a lot of really big changes really fast, right? 250 to 500 and pay upfront, then to 750 the next year. 
and then to subscriptions and our subscription, our lowest plan is 150 bucks a month. So even if you just have a 1040 in one state, it's 150 bucks a month. Now, if it's more complicated, it can go up from there, but everyone pays a minimum of 150 per month. That's a huge increase. So that took us from 750 in 2022 to a minimum of 1800 in 2023. But again, I had much lower adoption um, from my existing client base than I expected. But fortunately, I have enough accounting revenue to make up <laughs> to make up for that while I build that back up. And then the clients for the firm I acquired were already on subscription plans. The pricing was different. So now as new clients sign up, everyone's going to be on the same pricing model. But that helped. Okay. So two questions from there. One is how many different tiers of tax service are you offering? And then my favorite question around subscription-based tax services is what do you do when the client cancels after you file a return? How yeah. do you handle that? Okay. Um, so when it comes to tiers, we have three and they're not, they're, they're not really a choice made by the client it's based on their situation. So the first tier is you have a 1040, you know, just an individual return, maybe a schedule C, no entity, right? So no partnerships, S corps, C corps, just a 1040, a schedule C state return. If you have extra states, that's, that's extra. If you have additional schedule C's, there's an extra charge. If you have any other schedules, it'll be an extra charge. So that's the 150 a month package. The next level package, includes an S-Corp or a partnership, plus your personal return, and two tax projections per year. And then the top level package includes the entity and four tax projections per year, so quarterly. So that's how our tiers are currently structured. That may change as time goes on, because, you know, there's a lot of like, what if? What if, you know, there are two S-Corps instead of one, right? So. There are some things I still have to address, but that's the pricing structure that I have in place now. And remind me what your second question was. Yeah. So how do you deal with customers yes. you want to cancel after after you file the return, basically? So if it's a monthly thing and you file a return in March, like now what? So what people are paying, the, the monthly fees they're paying in 2023 are for the return I will do for 2023 next year. So they have to still be a client. Let me backtrack a little bit. The seller, her agreements were written such that it includes that clients can be refunded for the unused portion of the fees if they leave prior to the end of the year. So say they make it to September and then leave. We've earned the tax planning piece, but we've not earned the tax prep piece. So they get a refund. It's crazy. And it's something I did not catch in due diligence. My agreements say that all fees are earned, are considered earned upon receipt. Because for me, what clients are really paying for is access, right? They're paying for me to be in touch with them throughout the year, to keep the line of communication open, to be getting periodic updates, to be updating projections, to be recommending estimated tax payment amounts. If all of that's happening during the year, the tax return should be fairly simple because there's nothing new that I'm finding out during tax season. So for me, the big part of the value is not the tax prep, it's in all of the communicating throughout the year. So the agreements that my original client signed and that everyone is signing from here forward, you still have to be a paying client in December for us to do your taxes for 2023. If you leave prior to that, you're just out. I consider everything paid up to that point earned because I've been available and have consulted as promised. Okay, let's push on that a little bit more. So I come to you today, right? We're recording in late September of 23. Yep. Are you going to do my 23 return or are you going to tell me to come back in January and then we'll start working toward 24? I will do your return. So for me, the line in the sand is like June, July. So if you're coming to me and say June, I'm still going to put you in a monthly subscription plan for 2023 and I'm going to back charge you probably not all the way till January because you didn't benefit from tax planning for the first half of the year, but I'll charge you for like, you know, April, May, June, I'll give you three months free. If you're not coming to me until September or October, there's not a whole lot of the year left. I will most likely quote you a fixed fee for your 2023 tax prep only. And then at that same time you're signing that agreement, you're signing the monthly plan that will start in January. So there's a line in the sand where up until a certain date, you still get to be on a monthly plan for the current year. After that date, 
we're just going to prep your taxes for the current year and then the advisory package will start the next year gotcha yeah i i, I like that approach yeah it's been a lot of hours of going back and forth with myself to get to that point <laughs> So, you know, we're coming up on time, um, but let's let's, you know, kind of close out on this, because I, I really think this is an important part of the conversation, because, like you said, you you implemented these changes relatively quickly and, and on multiple fronts. Right. So not only did you change the prices, but you also changed the pricing and revenue model all within a couple of years. And I mean, I think a lot of firms, um, especially smaller ones, did this, you know, it, it, like covid the silver lining of COVID, right, for accounting firms was it forced them to rethink their business models um, a little bit, um, at least some of them. So you implemented all of these changes, but there are still, you know, a substantial number of accountants and accounting firm owners, especially small ones. You know, we'll ignore the big four; they'll probably never change, right? But uh, you know, the really big accounting firms. But thinking about the 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 smaller, the local, the regional kind of firms that are still hung up on you know, we got to bill for time, we got to bill for complexity, these sorts of things. What what were you thinking, like, as you were deciding to implement these changes, you know, that were those moments of, I can't do this, I just got to keep things the, the same? You know, what were the objections that came up in your mind? What did you say to yourself to get over those objections? And what would you tell other firm owners listening that are still hung up on those objections? I definitely had a little bit of imposter syndrome, right? Like who is going to pay me that kind of money to do a tax return? I think a lot of, especially small practice owners are really stuck on that. I live in a small town. People can't afford that. No one will pay me for that. It's taxes are, you know, kind of commoditized. So you can't just arbitrarily increase your fees without changing what you're offering. But for me, I had gotten to a point and my, my decisions happened pre-COVID. COVID just kind of helped move things along. I got to my breaking point. That last tax season just about killed me. It literally almost killed one of my employees. I'm 99% sure she had a stroke during tax season, though she still says she didn't. But I'm super familiar with stroke victims and I'm pretty sure she had a stroke. So that was the like, I cannot keep living like this. Either I'm radically changing this business or I'm shutting this thing down because I can't do another tax season like this. So my impetus for change was super powerful. And that really overrode any doubt I had in my mind. Like, this is not an option. These changes have to happen. But if you're not in a position where you're, you know, fearing for your life and your team members' literal lives, you may not be able to overcome the objections that easily. I, I would say... Well, I think we all know, you know, there are way more tax payers than there are tax professionals. So you are a hot commodity, even if taxes are commoditized. So start thinking about what your ideal day during tax season would look like. That's not an 18 hour day. You know, imagine how it would feel during tax season to actually have time to talk with your clients, to actually get on a Zoom meeting and walk them through their tax return instead of just at the last minute sending them an 8879 and hoping they don't ask questions. Like put yourself in a in a place to visualize what your firm would look like if you had your druthers and it could be whatever you want. And then just stay focused on that. Because what I learned and the fact that I'm a CPA does not, in my opinion, make me more valuable as a tax professional because I think we all know, or maybe you don't, just because you're a CPA does not mean you specialize in tax. I have fixed some pretty jacked up tax returns that were prepared by CPAs. And in full disclosure with all my friends here, I'm sure I have jacked up a tax return or two in my day. So don't let the whole, I have a CPA credential or I don't stop you. If you're an EA, you're probably a better tax preparer nine times out of 10 than I am as a CPA. But even if you don't have either of those credentials, as long as you invest in your education, just know that you know more than your clients do, you're definitely worth it. I, and it's just a mindset thing, right? You just have to embrace that you know a lot, you have a lot to offer, and then build your practice around that. Think about what level of service you would want if you were somebody's tax client. I actually have now hired a tax planner and a tax preparer for myself because now with five states, my stuff's too complicated for me to deal with. So it's been a pretty eye-opening experience to be on the client side. It has made me realize a lot of my shortcomings. And so as I'm developing these packages and coming up with this pricing, I'm looking at it from the viewpoint of a tax client. And I'm trying to answer the questions that I have as a client so I can preemptively answer questions my potential clients will have. 
don't know if that answered your question, but no, it it's absolutely mainly does. mindset. And you just I, have to I, know you're worth it and just do it. That's a that's a fantastic thought experiment. Like what what if you couldn't self prepare your own return as a firm owner? What if you had to go hire another firm to to yeah. prepare your your personal and business returns? What would you be looking for? What would you be expecting? And and then build your firm <laughs> that way. I love that. Everson, I think that's a perfect note to end on, Jerry. That was absolutely perfect. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being on the show. Definitely appreciate it. There's a lot of insight in there for sure. That was probably one of the more insightful episodes we've had in a while. Ooh, I'm going to write that down. Do it. Yeah, this is fun. I love this stuff. It's been it's been a wild four months, y'all. It's been absolutely wild, but I feel incredibly lucky to have been able to make this acquisition and to have it have turned out as successfully as it has. Please keep sharing about it online. That's how you know I got interested in your story. That's why I wanted you on the show to tell us about it. Um, and I think it's these kinds of experiences that a lot of firm owners are thinking about. They've heard about. You know, maybe you've even done a webinar or something on it, but you don't really know. You know, and you've even been one through, through been through one now, and you still got your list of things yeah. that you would do differently, right? Given given a second chance. So, again, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your experience. If people want to get in touch with you, um, maybe they've got some specific questions about acquisition, or would love to know that list of things that you would be looking for uh, on that second go around. Uh, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, or I guess it's X now, at Andrea MacD CPA. That's an easy way to reach me. I will also be at QuickBooks Connect. I've got two sessions, y'all. I'm on a panel about acquiring firms, and then I have a solo session about implementing subscription pricing in your tax firm. So if you're going to be at QuickBooks Connect, grab me. I'd be happy to chat through all of that. But yeah, Twitter, at Andrea MacD CPA is probably the easiest way to catch me. I'm planning on going. I might see you there. Be there. It's going to be great. <laughs> Thanks, Andrea. All right, guys. Hey, it's Jeremy. Thanks for listening to the CPA Advisory Show. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others. Leave a rating and write us a review. We'll probably read your review on the air too. To catch all the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at CPA Advisory Show. If you have a topic or guest you'd like to hear on the show, let us know by emailing host at CPA Advisory Show.com. Thanks again. 